You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, let's turn to that Psalm 134. If you're using the church Bible, it's on page 626. And as David said, this is the uh, 15th study in this series and the last as we come to the end of uh, these Psalms 120 through 134, which all have more or less exactly the same heading, a song of ascents. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. Well, as uh, we've noted in this series, these 15 Psalms probably written at different times, different places, in different personal contexts uh, by obviously different Psalm writers, uh, but brought together as a little hymn book, a praise book to be used by pilgrims as the people of God came from the little towns and villages on those great festival occasions each year and made their way to Jerusalem uh, for big church. It's actually a, a very interesting uh, question, isn't it? Uh, what kind of little church did they have? Uh, the synagogue is a relatively late arriver on the scene of Old Testament history. Uh, did they simply gather in families together? We, we know so very little about how they worshipped at home. But now they're coming to big church, and big church was really big church. Big church was, uh, in terms at least of American sociology, big church was a mega church. It had a large staff. It had magnificent choral music. It had drama. It had sacrifices. It had smells, and it had aromas. And as David was saying about uh, the relationship between the Old Testament worship and the New Testament worship, God, in a sense, had given His people what I sometimes think of as a pop-up picture book version of how the gospel works. You know, when your children are small, you, you don't get them the grown-up version of a book, but maybe you get them the, the cardboard version where things pop up and they can see and they can touch. And one of the things God did for His people in these ancient days was to almost crowd them in to infiltrate their whole life with indications and hints and ceremonies and words that pointed them forwards to the way in which God was going to fulfill His promise of saving blessing to them and to the nations. 
so that certainly when they came to Jerusalem, they, they couldn't really move during these weeks of festival without constantly bumping into pictures and reminders of their own need, their need for salvation, their need for forgiveness, the way in which God provided forgiveness. And also, as Hebrews teaches us, but men and women of faith in the Old Testament day would clearly have recognized this deep sense that whatever these pictures explained to them, these pictures could never save them. And we are to envisage the psalmist. He has come on his very first pilgrimage. He has been anxious. He lives in a pretty desperate village in Psalm 120. He is anxious about the dangers of the journey and what it's going to be like to go to this great conference and we've been following him through on a kind of spiral staircase of experience. And now, uh, here in a psalm that I wonder if it was specially written for this compilation. In this psalm, it is, it's the last night of the pilgrimage. It's the closing meeting of the conference, the last service of the convention. And if you've been tracking along, uh, life is a little different if you're the person who preaches a passage because you are supposed to live with it a little longer than the people who come to hear the exposition. But if you've been tracking along and if you've had any enjoyment of God's Word in this series or any series, then you probably share a little of how the psalmist, the pilgrim, is feeling. Uh, he, he feels now, I always feel at the end of a series, I think we're ready now to begin it. And uh, he's probably in that situation now that he's gone through this period. He, he feels he could go back to the beginning and, and benefit so much more. And a certain sadness uh, that it's all going to end tonight. He's actually in a better position than we are. Uh, he, he has the chance to be back there singing these psalms in a few months' time. Uh, by my reckoning, David has got to Psalm 58 on Communion Sundays. If you want to take in Psalm 119, and he's going to do that not just in one Sunday, uh, you're going to wait for about eight years before you get back into the Psalms of Ascent. And so there's a, a certain sadness about leaving a series like this. The church I served, we had a, we had a weekly paper, and sometimes at the end of uh, the, uh, the series, I'd write a letter to the author, just personally thanking him. I don't know if the saints in heaven ever read anything I write, but uh, it was a way of saying to myself, to the Lord, to the Lord's servants, to our fellowship. Uh, God has really given us a gift in this part of Scripture. And I think we are to envisage the psalmist now. Uh, he's made his way up the temple mound, and he has entered into the temple precincts. It is the last night 
And as he steps in, and unfortunately, the New International Version, in my view, here and often, rather messes up. This psalm begins with a word that remains untranslated in the New International Version. It's what they call in grammar a particle, little words that uh, sometimes don't mean a great deal. I think, if I may be gentle on the New International Version, because they do this so often, they constantly miss out the translation of these little particles. I think they maybe equate them in an instance like this. You know how there are some people, as they want to make an announcement, they go, <clears throat> that's kind of difficult to write in Hebrew or in English. It's just a kind of little particle that something is going to happen. But actually, interestingly, the same is true at the beginning of Psalm 133 as is true at the beginning of Psalm 134. There is a word here in which I think the psalmist is saying something very significant. He's gone into the temple. It's the last service. The place is crowded. You know, unless you've gone to a great conference, a great convention, or been a member of a very large church, you may not quite have the emotional Velcro strips to absorb what it means to go into a space where there are thousands of people who have been together for several days doing nothing but worshiping God and sharing godly fellowship together. And the older translations get it. The psalm actually begins, Behold, look. And I think it's there to say essentially this. Do you see what I see? Can you see through my eyes to, to understand the impact on my soul of having been here and now coming into this closing service of our pilgrimage together. Just look. And if you share my perspective, I don't even need to tell you what to look at. You know how you sometimes say to a friend, look at that. And, you know, unless you're a little strange or they're a little strange, they don't turn to you and say, which that? There are 60 that's out there. You share the same experience. You, you see a beautiful sunset and, and you say, just look at that. And because the that fills the horizon, no one has any doubt about what it is that you're pointing out. And it's as though the psalmist is, they just say, do you see this? Uh, some of you, I'm sure, have had the experience if you've been it, it could happen here, it could have happened in a, a larger gathering, and the, the people of God are singing their hearts out. Sometimes you want to do it here, maybe particularly when we're singing psalms. And you just close your mouth, and you want to, you want to stand back and just… you want the moment to stop so that you can absorb into your soul what it is that is happening here as these people are magnifying and praising God. 
And as he brings this collection of psalms to an end, what is it that he's saying? Did you see that? Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Do you have the focus that that I've had, that, that God has given to me in these days when we've been together in study and in worship and in praise? And there are two things filling his horizon. The first in verses 1 and 2 is that more than anything else in the world, he wants the people to bless the Lord. And then, if there is something even more he wants in the world, it is in verse 3 that he wants the Lord to bless the people. I use the word bless there deliberately. You think that uh, maybe I ate something today at lunchtime that really upset me about the New International Version. I don't understand why it is that translators will not translate the same word in the same way when it appears in the same context. And here I think the NIV is, is really quite misleading because it takes the word bless and it turns it into praise. And therefore, if all you've got is the New International Version, you assume that these are different words and they mean quite different things. But the astonishing thing about the psalm here is that the psalmist is calling upon the people to do what he wants God to do to the people. He wants the people to bless God and he wants the Lord to bless the people. Now, of course, these are not quite the same thing because you are not God and God is not you. It's one thing for me to bless the Lord, but it has a different significance when I say that I want the Lord to bless me. Now, he addresses people here. There's discussion among the scholars as to whether he's speaking to the Levites in particular, who minister by night in the house of the Lord, or whether he actually is speaking to the whole congregation that's gathered there for the last service of the pilgrimage. And I take it in this instance that it's the latter, that he's addressing all of the people And he is saying, we have no higher calling. We have no greater dignity. We have no more ecstatic joy in our lives than when we find ourselves bowed down together with a sense of God's presence in the place where he promised his heart would be open towards us. And we find ourselves extolling and praising and magnifying the Lord. Actually, what makes this psalm very striking is it is the shortest of all of these 15 psalms, but there are more references to the Lord in this psalm than in any other psalm except one, and that other psalm is six times as long as this psalm. So, in terms of density of references to the name the Lord, and if you look at any modern version, Lord will be in block capital letters. 
It's the way the translations signify to us, this is the divine name Yahweh. This is the name that God revealed through Moses and interpreted to Moses. And so if you, if you ask yourself, where is this man looking as he sees this vast crowd? Actually, he's not really looking at the crowd. His mind, his spirit, his heart is, is, is dominated by his sense of the Lord. Remember how the 14th Psalm says about the ungodly that, that the Lord is not in his thoughts. That's true, isn't it? And the Lord is just not in his thoughts. Um, he has squeezed God out of his thoughts. Yes, he can't do it. He can't, he can't barricade himself in. God will find ways of throwing in little grenades of gospel truth into his life, and he'll never be able to protect himself fully and finally. But that's the way he wants to live. And what has happened in this series of Psalms, this man? This man lives in a very difficult place where there is much opposition to his faith. And where is he at the end of uh, this series? He's he is, he is intoxicated with a sense of the greatness and the power and the majesty of God. Isn't it interesting here that when he ends the psalm, he speaks about the Lord as the maker of heaven and earth? I mean, here's this man who was worried about maybe a 50-mile journey over some hills where there might be bandits, and his eyes were on the hills, and his heart was full of anxiety about the bandits. But now the hills are small. The bandits are incidental. And what fills his soul is that the covenant Lord has met with him, and he belongs to the Lord, and his whole thinking has been recalibrated. His whole being has been recentered on the Lord. And that's, what, that's the fruit and blessing of being and with the Lord's people twice on the Lord's day, isn't it? You don't go to bed the way you get out of bed. Um, even if you had to drag yourself there. Isn't it amazing the impact it can make, not just on your mind and your spirit, but on your body? that you've been worshiping the Lord, and you don't drag yourself home. You may be tired, you may be exhausted, but you are exhilarated. And the world looks a different place. Because, well, why? Because you are looking at it from off-center. And when you look at it from off-center, things seem big and intimidating and fill you with anxiety and fear. But when you are brought back to center and your being is centered in this covenant Lord, this is the covenant Lord who said he'd seen his people suffering and misery and he'd come down and he would deliver them. And this is, this is what he's thinking about that there in the worship, this, this covenant Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, has been present 
And uh, it's, it's, it's been like having new lenses in his spectacles. And he, he sees things. Isn't it interesting that Psalm 120 began with his eyes focused on where he was and the difficulties of being a believer in that situation. And at the end of the psalm, it's almost as though that situation didn't exist. Well, of course it exists. But you see, it was so big in his vision. And God seemed so small. God seemed almost absent at the beginning. But now it's God who is big and his situation that's small. Now, which of these two perspectives is the right perspective? That's the question. Did he have the right perspective when he began the pilgrimage, or has he got the right perspective when he ends the pilgrimage? Well, he's been in the presence of the maker of heaven and earth. It's a bit like the book of Revelation, isn't it? Do you remember how, uh, how John has this amazing experience in Revelation? in these marvelous words, where he hears these words, you just come up here with me, and I'll show you. Of course, that's what we need. That's what we, that's what we need when we come here together. We come from different situations, different, different difficulties. We have different personalities. We're not able to assess one another very easily. Some of us don't seem to have come very far, but the obstacles that needed to be overcome before we could get to where we are have been far bigger than in someone else's life. And and we know that, that all of these things are true of us. But then the Lord says, come on up here, and I'll show you what it really looks like. And he's been in the presence of the Lord. He's seen his greatness, his his soul has been cleansed. Remember how Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them through your word. And that's, that's been his experiences in different ways. The word, the covenant word has been made known to the people, just as the new covenant word is made known to us. And uh, we live in a world where where Christians are far too often reading books about how you do something in the Christian life, and not realizing that what the Lord wants is that His Word will do its work in your Christian life, and then you'll be free to do your work. And what is so interesting is that we read a psalm like this from the perspective of the back of the book. You know, we, we don't, we, we love the Psalms and we, we relish their teaching, but we do not stand in page 626. We stand at page 1200 and something or another. And we're able to see something about his focus on the Lord that, that he couldn't quite see. We're able to see that this word Lord, that is the great Old Testament word for the the covenant Yahweh, the Lord, is actually the word that's used in the New Testament for the Lord Jesus. And that in 
in the, in the temple of God's people. We are the temple now of God's people. What is experienced is that because of what he has done, I mean our Lord Jesus Christ, his Father has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess that he is Yahweh. He is curious to the glory of God the Father. So that if this man was, was longing for the people of God to praise the Lord because of who the Lord was, then how much more we uh, who have seen him, uh, who have seen in the word Jesus, who is the exegesis of God the Father to us. And it's interesting in that connection, when, when that becomes the center, uh, there are, there are knock-on effects. Not things that you work up, but things that God works in. One of them is that you learn who you are. And isn't it striking here that the way in which he describes, I think, the people of God in general is that, that we are the Lord's servants. We're like the slave in the Old Testament who, when his period of slavery was completed, he was an indentured slave, and now it was time to go free. And because of the blessings he had in his master's house, he would go to his master and say, I love you, and I, I don't want to go free. And the master would take him to the, the door post, and he would get a little nail and a hammer, and he would bang, bang the hammer through the man's ear. I guess it was a little... It was a little sign, this ear piercing, that forevermore now that ear would be directed to the, the voice of his master, and he would be lovingly obedient to him. You know, if any of your children ever says, okay, if I get my ears pierced, you might say, I'll take you to the door, and I'll do it myself. <laughs> and while I'm doing it, you say, I love my master Jesus, and I do not want to go free. And so, it's in this context that he, he wants them to do. Notice what he wants them to do. He wants them to lift up their hands in the sanctuary. Now, should we spiritualize that? Well, spiritualize that if you want. What does it mean? Well, in the Psalms, it, it means two things. It means either that you are, you are stretching out your hands to the Lord in, in praise and adoration. I have a, a dear friend uh, who does this constantly in worship, so energetically it's dangerous to stand beside him in a service. Um, and the other context in which used in the Psalms is when you're, you know, there is, there's this, and there's this, isn't there? There's, oh God, help me. And so in either situation, he's urging them to, to lift up their hands. I think there may in this instance, however, be a, a rather particular nuance in what he's saying. 
If you've been tracking uh, with the the series, you know uh, that behind so many of these psalms, probably all of these psalms, is that, that the ultimate goal of this pilgrimage is to be there in the temple where God has pledged He will be present, and for the priest to appear and to lift his hands and pronounce the Aaronic blessing on you, the Lord bless you and keep you, and so on. Number 6, 24 to 26. I think the power of that was brought home to me a few years ago. I was preaching in a service in a friend's church where they had, they had redone their worship space, and at the end of the service, I raised my hands to pronounce the benediction, and everybody in the… Con- this is a Presbyterian church, incidentally, just in case you're worried about where I'm going. Everyone in the congregation lifted, and, and then I remembered. I knew my friend had taught them to do this. Presbyterians or not, as God commands His blessing. Of course, it can be artificial, but here it was intended to be real. What do we do? We we lift up our hands and say, fill us, Lord. Isn't it interesting that when the New Testament speaks about worship, it speaks about the body as well as the spirit. We're to present our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. I have to confess that because I knew this would come up in the summer, I was kind of taking a little squint around the congregation when we were singing some of these hymns tonight. You probably didn't know you were doing it. But your whole being is given over to the Lord. It's through the renewal of your mind by the truth of Scripture, that your life is transformed. But a transformed life is your whole being. And and this is what he's experienced. He has experienced his whole being being given over to the Lord. And so he's he's saying, "Do, do you see this? Were you in a different place this week? Has it struck you this way? And don't you want, when that happens to you, don't, don't you want it to be true for everyone in the fellowship? Often at the end of the service of the Lord's Supper, which is, a, David will say this, any minister would say this, is such a privilege to uh, conduct a table service of the Lord's Supper and, and to, to sense that the Lord's people are being fed by these uh, these means of simple communication of the love of Jesus, so that when you're embraced by the love of Jesus, I I know this has been true for me, you know, one, one doesn't do it, perhaps one should do it more. You want to go around the whole congregation and hug everybody and say, you've forgiven me, haven't you, for Christ's sake? And for them to say, you've forgiven me for Christ's sake. Um, Do you notice our prayer this evening ended with a prayer for the forgiveness of sins? And this is what it means to be caught up into the life, the the new life, the new world of the Christian church. If anyone is in Christ, says Paul, new creation… It doesn't actually say if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. 
didn't even say if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He says if you're in Christ, new creation. In a completely different world. Because you've been re-centered, you see, in God. And you want to bless him, that is. You want to You want to praise Him. You want to magnify Him. You want God to seem in your eyes as big as He really is and as great and glorious and gracious as He really is. And then, of course, um, because you've said, now, friends, let's uh, lift up our hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. Now, he, He turns to what you're lifting up your hands for. He wants the people of God to bless the Lord, and he wants the Lord to bless his people. May the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. Now, the word bless, you know, somebody sneezes and you say, bless you. It's a much bigger word in the Bible. It's a word in the Bible that always functions in relationship to God's covenant commitment to his people. And it's a hugely significant word. It means that when God blesses you, God gives you everything that he wants for you and makes you everything he desires you to be. And actually, the whole story of the Bible can be told along those lines. Creation when God blessed them. And then there's another word that's, that's always got God's covenant lying behind it. It's the word curse. It's when instead of lifting up your hands to the Lord for His blessing, you lift up your fist to the Lord. And like Adam and Eve, you fall under the curse. And these two words, bless and curse, appear right at the very beginning of the Bible. When we live in fellowship with God, magnifying Him, praising Him, blessing Him, we we live absolutely in the jet stream of all of His blessings. When we turn away, we're turning away from the light, and so there is only darkness. We're turning away from the life, and so there is only death. And so when we turn from the blessing, we find ourselves under the cursing. And the whole story of the Bible is a story of how how God makes it possible for us who are under the curse to be restored to the blessing. You could put it like this that when we bless God, we give Him His glory. When God blesses us, He restores us to the glory for which He created us. Remember Paul's insight in Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and we have fallen short, not just of the standards of God or the law of God, although that's true. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. He wanted us to be reflections of His glory. He wanted us to taste His glory. I mean, we have no idea, and I guess rarely think about it, just how good God's glory tastes. How 
how beautiful is the aroma of God's glory. That's why there was so much stuff in the temple worship that you could see and smell and touch. That's why they had to bring, in the reading, they had to bring all that stuff together because God wanted the place to be beautiful, because He wanted them to to be able to see His beauty, to, to touch it, to taste it, to smell it, and to love it. And uh, so all the way through from Genesis, when they turn from the blessing to the curse, the story is, how is God going to reverse the curse and bring about the blessing? Somebody has got to deal with the curse. Remember how when he makes the promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bring blessing to the nations through your seed. And then Abraham has this strange experience in the darkness when when these dismembered animals are put in two rows opposite one another, and this this light passes through the middle. And uh, it's, it's it's a message, isn't it? It is God saying, if I fail to keep my promise of blessing to you, may I become like these dismembered animals. It's God pledging His very existence to bringing the blessing. And the whole story of the Old Testament is, how is this, how is this blessing going to come? Because in a sense, it's going to cost the divine dismemberment to bring about blessing for those who are under the divine curse. Somebody's going to have to come under the divine curse and exhaust it in our place. And there are all these animals that are sacrificed. And they're all saying, you know, when, when the hands are laid on the, on the goat and the sins are confessed, It's all a picture of somebody else has got to bear the curse because I can't bear it. Somebody's got to take the curse away so that the blessing can start flowing again. And this, of course, is uh, exactly what Paul says in Galatians 3. What is the meaning of the death of the Lord Jesus? It is that He became a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs in a tree. He became a curse for us in order that the blessing might flow to us that had been promised to Abraham. And that's why when you get right to the very end of the Bible, almost right to the last paragraph of the Bible in the book of Revelation, what we are told about God's destiny for his people is that there will be no more curse. Now, the psalmist couldn't have understood all this, but he was in the middle of the story, and he was in the temple. And everything he had seen, as as these festivals went on, the daily business of the temple was still going on, the morning and the evening sacrifices, the animals being brought and slaughtered, the stench of the blood filling the temple. 
And, th- and for the, f- the first time, think of it, this, this, this young pilgrim whom we've envisaged going on pilgrimage for the very first time, he's never seen this before. He's heard people speak about it, but he's never actually seen it. He's never smelled the smells. He's never seen the sights. And now he's there. He's seen this sight. And it was there on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday. More animals, more sacrifices, more sins. And if he was a person of faith, as Hebrews says, he, he would have seen through it and beyond it and said, but if these were the sacrifices that were taking away the judgment curse of God upon my life, they wouldn't need to be repeated. And so they, they can't be the real thing. They're just pictures. I don't know what the reality is. I know this about someone coming and suffering and dying and then blessing, but I don't know who he is. But he knows enough to be able to take hold of the pictures and the promises and to, and to however vaguely to, to sense, as it were, the shadow of the Lord Jesus and to say, I not only want us to bless the Lord, I'm praying for the unprayable. I'm praying that the Lord will actually take the curse himself in order that the blessing may then flow to us of life forevermore. Isn't there somebody somewhere in the New Testament that says, I have come that they might have life and life in all its fullness. Now, two things by way of application. You raise your hands because He has so filled your life and recalibrated you, you want to praise Him. Or you raise your life because things are dark for you and uh, you want Him to fill your hands with blessing. Or maybe it is that uh, this is all new to you. And you need to raise your hands too. And if it is new to you, probably the question you ask is, if I'm, going to, if I'm going to come to God and if I'm going to raise my hands, what do I need to bring in my hands so that the, the sense of curse under which I know I live because of my sin will be turned into blessing? What do I need to have in my hands? Oh, do you know the great hymn by Top Lady? Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. You remember its next verse. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. He is, dear friends, He is sufficient for each of us and all of us. As Hebrews says, He is able to save to the uttermost and in the uttermost 
all those who come to God through him. And uh, if that's true of us, whatever our situation, uh, we, can, we can go back home now, uh, like the psalmist, and uh, we can say to each other, I can't wait for these next eight years to pass before David takes us through the Psalms of a second. Heavenly Father, thank you for these Psalms that are so full of light and life and joy and comfort and wisdom and grace. And thank you most of all for our Lord Jesus, who himself must have sung them uh, even as a 12-year-old boy with his mom and dad going on pilgrimage and thought of how the decades would pass another 18 years and more before he would bear the curse that would enable people to come with empty hands and look to you to be filled with blessing. Oh, we pray pronounce that blessing on each of us in our very different circumstances and so fill our minds and hearts in this week with the Lord Jesus Christ that in every situation we may feel that we have been re-centered in him and enabled to serve him for his glory. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.